Hello, family. Welcome back to another episode of Club Obscurite, hosted by none other than myself and Steve. In this episode, we welcome artist Heather Raquel Phillips, who specializes in video and photography. I'm recording this intro after the fact because I completely botched our live one. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. You can also find our website on anchor.fm at anchor.fm slash club obscurite sans the accent. Also, if you're feeling generous, leave us a review. Enjoy the show. As a note, this is the first episode of Club Obscurite that we have recorded since the murder of George Floyd, and it doesn't take a genius to see that we're still living in the fallout. Heather, as I understand it, your work right now is directly engaging with this moment in history. Could you please tell us about what you've been up to lately? You know, the thing that's interesting about what I like to refer to as the lynching of George Floyd is that it's set within parameters of like a shelter in place during a pandemic. And so I was home and this is a very easy place for me to be, like to be here and to be isolated. I've been waiting for this moment all my life, you know, and I, and I don't like to say that because this is not a great moment for everybody for a plethora of reasons, notably economically for a lot of people. And so I, I'm sensitive to that. But, but, but to be honest, I'm here and I have some time to myself to make work because as an artist and as an educator, I work about four or five jobs at any given moment during the year. So I'd been here and I had been making work in response to the pandemic. So I've made some videos and have been taking footage and also masks. So it was kind of like getting into this language of like the mask as the skies and as costume. And, you know, as soon as people started wearing masks, it was selfies. And, you know, there's something super strange about like this, this relationship between a pandemic and death and like performative kind of mask wearing. I was there and then I was planning on doing this, like I had this idea to do this gallery on the front of my home, this public art gallery where I would invite artists locally or, or not locally to hang some textile work. So banners, flags, because it's a large part of my practice and I know some textile people. So I just like reached out and thought, I'll launch this in June. June 12th is Loving Day. And if anybody's not familiar, Loving Day was the, the day that Loving versus Virginia, Loving, the Loving case won. It was an interracial couple. The Supreme Court ruled that the 16 states that remained with anti-miscegenation laws would have to lift those laws. So the Loving family, the couple had been arrested for being married was an interracial couple. And then this law, they, they won this in 1967. And that was seven years before I was born. And I say that because I'm from an interracial couple. So I figured all oh, started on that. It's a great month. We've got pride, you know, we've got Juneteenth, we've got loving day and we've got flag day. Like what, like a month chock full of the ingredients to have a flag and banner show. 
And then the lynching happened. First, it was Armad Arbery, and then it was George Floyd. And then we had Breonna Taylor and, 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 right, because this is constant. And I think the recipe was that we got a really graphic video of this lynching and we're all home and we're all looking at screens. So seeing that rise in fury, it just it just felt like an urgent moment and that I had to start the gallery then. So that day I made a banner and it said, I can't breathe. And I hung it out front. So I had been working on getting like hardware installed all this time. So I already, I was prepared. So I hung this banner out and I went to my corner store, which I'm always at. And the corner store guy said, do you have your cameras on? in your window and i said yeah why and he said well and what was the reaction like on the initial one or or the official opening well yeah and in the context of george floyd's murder yeah the george floyd murder brought the first threat you know and that was what i was told by my like my neighborhood connection which you know, is my corner store guy. He didn't say exactly what it was, but I went back and I asked him, I said, you know, on a level like one to 10, what, what kind of threat do you think this is? Is it, is it a blowhard or is it someone that's actually going to do something? And he said, well, you know, I, I don't think this guy's going to actually do something, but I would keep your cameras rolling because people don't like to see stuff like that. You know, I installed security lights and I got an additional security camera and I'm in the process of, you know, making sure that my house is taken care of. I'm not going to be silenced. I live here and I pay taxes here and I've been here for 13 years and I'm not from this neighborhood and they look at me and they know that and that's okay. But my sister lives two blocks from me and people down here don't really know who I am. So it's like this weird kind of thing. And I don't know how to explain as how I move in the world and how I'm viewed, what that means to different communities. So it's, it's, it's been interesting. And I just decided at that moment that I will look everybody in the eye that I see and I will say hello to them. Uh, so I had a little art opening, which was at any given point, maybe 10 people sitting outside, you know, all at a distance. I had some, I served a drink and had some beer and seltzer out there and, and a white shirt police officer came out and said, you know, uh, we had a call that there's a protest over here. I said, no, it's, we're just, it's art. We're doing an art thing. Oh, well, oh, okay. You know, so he says, uh, all right, well, how long are you going to be out here? And I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I said, I live here. And he was like, oh, oh, you live here. It was like really strange. Where you are in South Philly, if you're near the plaza, that it's mm-hmm. more of an old school Italian close knit like uh, everyone's been living in those homes forever. They all, and that's how a lot of pockets are in Philadelphia. Even it's very familial. Everyone knows each other. Everyone's kind of in their business, which I imagine a lot of cities are like. So I don't know if it's necessarily unique to Philadelphia. No, yeah. I mean, a neighborhood is a neighborhood is a neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. It just depends kind of on what that neighborhood is about. I mean, this is, I think we made national news, I think with this Marconi Plaza. I could be wrong but it's 
being talked about on that level. You know, Trump mentioned it, even though he mentioned the wrong city, but that's no surprise. You know, the same day that we opened on Flag Day was the same day that they started defending the Columbus statue. Okay. So they were inflamed, you know, and I, I had a couple conversations on the block with people who were over there. It's interesting being in this time because I, I've never had any desire to really like get down with any of my neighbors anywhere I've lived in the city. I like to keep to myself. It, that's why I'm all the way down here. You know, I've been a bartender and a student in the city forever, and I just want some privacy. So it's been interesting to show people what I'm about and also to find out what people are about, you know, I, and I had a friend who said like, you, you know, you, you shouldn't be doing that because like you're on the inside and people don't know who you are and now they know who you are. I can't help that. Like I, I didn't, I didn't take on the role of passing. If I, if I was going to take on that role, then I wouldn't be talking about any of this stuff ever. Let them think what they will, but they'll have to read my signs every day when they pass them. Can we talk about how, uh, you've gotten to the point you're at now in your journey. Um, you talked about making art and sort of showing where you're at. So how did you get where you are now? What, what motivated you to get into the arts? That's all I know. I mean, it's like as simple as that. It's all I know. It's all I ever wanted to do. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried things like as an idea, you know, as a concept, I've, like I went out for fire and police before I went to grad school for art. I went for TSA and did the full round of interviews. It's weird because I go for all these like uniform jobs that are like the antithesis of what I do. But I did have things in mind, like as far as like, oh, if I went into fire, I could go into the art department. You know, I'd have to run into a couple fires, but then I could like become an artist for the fire department. So but this is all I've ever done. I didn't do it in a very traditional way. I went out into the world and I lived for a while and I went to undergrad when I was like 27 to 33. And I took an art class when I was maybe in my second year and I went, oh, that's right. This is what I do. Wound up taking a nice break after that and went back to grad school, I think when I was 40 or close to it. And, and how did you transition from going for these more traditional uniform jobs to being able to make art in a much more sustained and consistent way. Undergrad was so exhausting. I was working and going to school seven days a week. And I was sometimes like putting my car in park at a red light on my way to school and like closing my eyes to get a minute of sleep. Like I was, I was just worn out. And so I had wanted to go to graduate school to take my career further I took a six year break and I couldn't find a, I didn't think I could find a graduate program in Philadelphia for photography. And so I went back for art education. And as soon as I was in there, I was like, what am I doing? Like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to teach kids. I don't want to work with kids. And so I dropped out and I searched for a program and then I found Penn. And realized that I could go there for to they have an interdisciplinary program. So I wound up going there and I just think I needed a break. And I think I was like, again, I get like, I'm, I'm curious and I'm into a lot of things. And I just, sometimes I stray and I'm like, maybe I want to be a cop. Maybe I want to be a fireman, you know? And even today you're like, I might go join the 
police force tomorrow. So maybe then they won't come to my house. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But I do. I do. I go. I'm always like, I just, I, I like the challenge. I like the thought of like, these possibilities are out there and you can kind of do anything. And sometimes it's just, it's too much. This week I was like, my air conditioner broke. I was like, I'm fixing it myself. I'm changing it, you know, which halfway happened, but that's like, it's like, you know, it's just, it's just craziness sometimes. So part of being an artist really. So your first medium was photography. Is that, was that kind of what you were doing at the time that you started with or were you into textiles or just making things, painting? I don't know. What did that look like? What was, what was your medium journey? Like, I mean, I, I grew up doing drawing and painting and whatever they were teaching me and I never felt anything click. And then I took my first photography class when I was maybe in like my second year of art school proper when I went to undergrad. And I was like, oh, you know, it was, I knew I was in the art, but I, it never like could fully make sense. Like I could never find the expression in there. And then I started taking photos and I was like, oh, this is it. Like, this is the thing I've been searching for. I knew it was color. I was taking black and white classes because they start you on the foundation. And I wait to get to color. Like I knew that I needed color photographs and that was going to be the thing. I knew that it was going to be like about the body. One of our first projects was using ourselves as the subject. And I really got into working that way. And it was like, it was like pure therapy for me. I got into that and I was doing things in undergrad that like maybe some of my classmates were, and they were all younger than me. So that that's another reason, but I had lived like an entire life already. You know, I mean, if you spend I don't know, a year in a strip club, like you've got content for a lifetime. So I had already lived a lot and gotten sober and like had, you know, and I had, you know, I mean, my first memories were already the basis of like an entire, I don't know, world of information. So I was working in sound and working in making these like installations and these sculptural pieces, but I really, really wound up concentrating on photo. And it wasn't until I got to grad school that that kind of content came back into my practice. Like I really just made photographs when I got out. Could you talk about maybe how that time period before you went and got your, your bachelor's, like what work were you doing then? And how did that experience kind of inform where you're at now? To be completely candid, I was struggling with mental health issues and I was using, abusing substance. And so I was kicked out and moved over here into the city when I was 19. And and I was just working in bars. I was working in strip clubs and I was drinking around the clock, basically, you know, and I was young. So it wasn't like you know, it sounds kind of like it's depressing when I recount it, but I don't want to say that. I was having the time of my life in many ways. I was meeting amazing people that I'm still very much in touch with who informed me and guide me to be the person that I am today. But I was also struggling, you know, I was also in a lot of pain. And I was very fortunate to have gotten sober when I was 24, 24. Yeah. And so you know, from that point on, then I just kind of started reading a lot of books. Like that's, and that's how I wound up back in school. I was just like, I I was craving like a more formal environment to do that. So that's what led me there. And then the aha moment was the like, oh yeah, that's what I do. I do art. Identity issues. 
is a pretty big piece of your work or identity politics and just kind of seeing people. I'm just kind of going off your website, but I just know from looking at your work and kind of being in your class. Um, now, was that all kind of informed from that time period as well? I mean, just seeing all of that through the bars and like the strip club. I mean, that that starts with me being mixed. That mm. That just, you know, and that was something that I had to sort through on my own since I was a kid. You know, my father was in and out of prison um, all my life. So we went separate ways when I was four and I didn't come back with him until I was 17. And I think about like, I was a little kid. I was seven years old when I was like called a racial racial slur on the steps going into my elementary school. And I had no one to go to with that information. And I've been really, really dealing with that a lot lately. Like I, I think of that moment and I can be right there. But then I think about like, now I'm thinking about like, wow, like I couldn't process that. I didn't have anybody to go to and say like, you know, like someone called me this word. And so it just, it kind of started from there. And I think there was always this kind of issue of safety and who was it okay to be around? And like, you're not supposed to mention these things. And it was, it was complicated. I would get on the bus and go to Philly. My parents live like 10 minutes from here. I would get on the bus Friday, Saturday, and Sunday on the weekends and come over to Philly because I just could blend in here. It's like nothing when I'm over here, but in a white suburb where there's not even really an Italian in your town, like, you know, I was the blackest thing they had. And they treated me accordingly. And it wasn't all terrible, but it definitely wasn't all pleasant. I just knew at a young age that it was all the same. I just knew and understood what would become and what is intersectional politics, right? I just understood that young because I just felt empathically about anybody who was being bullied or hurt over something that they had no control over. It started there. I found my tribe. It's all the people in the margins, but it's like the people that are like, they're in the margins of the marginal groups. It's people who don't fit into the communities in which they would otherwise be placed. It took a while to figure out, like, but it seems to be the... the the connecting factor with all the people that I'm around is that they, they all kind of sit outside independently. And then like, we have this thing and then there's these little groups that exist, but everybody has always been able to, I've been kind of like a bridge. All these people can kind of figure out a space where they can act and work together, whether it's through being trans or mixed race or like an immigrant or obese or mature, you know, there's all these different factors that kind of come in that allow for the complexities of these people to kind of be acknowledged and, and exist together amongst like-minded people. That's how I think the work wound up expanding into like this larger thing that isn't just my experience alone, you know, because I think I was making a lot of work 
like therapeutically about my experience. And then at some point I was able to push through that wall and I had wanted to, you know, I'd wanted to be edgier. I'd wanted to be like more provocative. And I was having a hard time because I thought I would disappoint my mom. And when I was in grad school, it was like, you know, I was having this conversation. I was like, I just like, I can't get her to stop looking over my shoulder in here. And then, and then it happened, you know, then I got to this place where I made this thing and she loved it. You know, she's out here now, you know, like now she wants to tell everybody. I'm like, you know, like, I'm like, so you don't have to show it to everybody. It's definitely not for everybody. I was so afraid of something that wasn't even like it was a boogeyman, you know, maternal judgment, you mean? Yeah. Or, yeah. So you talked a, a bit about going beyond your own set of personal experiences and reflecting more of, of others experience, given the work that you have, for example, on your website or Instagram or whatnot, could you maybe discuss a piece or pieces where you do, in fact, bring in others' experience in a way you think is particularly effective? I don't know that I don't work that way today at all. My work really, and I matured when I stopped worrying so much about myself. I don't say it to judge myself. Part of it was getting mature, but part of it was like I... I had a lot of trauma at a very early age and I had a lot to work through and art helped me with that. And so I think maybe I just got to the point and I think that's what led me to grad school is that I got through that work. And then maybe after having this kind of karmic relationship that really kind of like shook up things for me and I made these kind of like this triptych of self-portraits I think it's at that point where I'm like, now I start searching and I'm like, I want to do something more. I want to dig into this content. And it was in grad school that I learned to like stop centering myself. And that made it so much bigger and so much more important to me to let people in, to work collaboratively, to thrive in community and to see like, to see my people thrive in that space and to provide like, a play space for people to exist and to have fun exactly as they are without worrying about judgment with being like applauded and having people excited for them to be their weirdest, you know, most marginal kind of odd self. I, I couldn't have realized that that's what I wanted to get to, but that's what I wanted to get to, you know, and that's what works now. So the voice isn't singular. It says like, you know, because like the thing that's important to me and the thing I think it's interesting and it goes back to the banners outside is that like, it's not just about like, it's not just about like BLM, you know, like that is very important and that's at the forefront. And if um, black people are not liberated, nobody is like, none of us are free until we all are free. And so I think it's really important to maintain those other voices, like the queer voices, like the mixed race people, like the immigrants, right? Like we have to consider um, people who are in and part of the prison industrial complex, right? We have to consider all of these moving parts because yes, we focus on this thing in, you know, that's, that's huge right now. And we, we need that. We need that because, Anybody who's kind of sitting at the bottom of the pile 
if we deal with them and if we get them liberated, everybody up above them on the social scale benefits. And people don't understand that. People think they're going to like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my benefits of like, you know, white privilege or whatever. But really it's, it's not, it's the other way. Everybody else will benefit. So, so rising tide lifts, rising tide lifts all boats in, in short. I like that. Right. I like that. Yeah. So it kind of, it connects to being a child and having this like understanding of like, okay, I don't know exactly where I fit, but I know that I've been ostracized. And so like, we all have to, all of us band together. But isn't it true? I mean, everyone sees things through the prism of their own experience, but from a musician's perspective, I've always been into the underground, if not the underbelly. And, you know, there was a period in my life, particularly in my twenties, where I had to write about a lot of, you know, dark seedy stuff in order to get to where I am now. Partly Mm -hmm. it was the maturation process, partly because all this stuff was just inside of me raining down on me and had to come out. Would you find that experience similar with your work? Like you had to, in order to get to where you are today, you had to work through the stuff that might seem a little bit more centered on yourself. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I wasn't going to get anywhere without working on that stuff anyway. It just, it needed to be worked out in a hundred different ways, but yeah, for sure. And ultimately in the end, we're all still working through our experience in a way, right? I'm not making the work I'm making without being who I am and experiencing all the things that I did. So, and you can ask some people and some people will say making art is a very self-indulgent thing. I don't believe that, but I do believe that it is indulgent in a way Mm -hmm. and I'm lucky for it. But, you know, I also believe the world needs art. You know, we're the ones, right? Musicians, artists, filmmakers, right? Like we're the ones that have the keys to change the world. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I don't know. Chicken or the egg, I guess, <laughs> sort of. Right? Do you believe, do you believe an artist must suffer in order to create great work or transcendent work? Matt, you don't have to suffer. <laughs> 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 You know, that is a, that's a complicated question. It really is. It's like, oh God, no, I don't. However, (laughs) I think that anybody living through experiences that are incredibly challenging and making it through those experiences to become a stronger person is building character that you can't without those kind of things. So if you're moving around with a silver spoon in your mouth all your life and you're kind of like, you know, living this charmed experience, uh, are you going to have a whole lot to say? Maybe not, you know, and maybe good for you. I don't know if I could swap out and like have had it easy, you know, like maybe I would. I don't know if my parents were rich and I didn't have to work, I probably wouldn't, you know what I mean? What would make me better than all these other people that like decide to like live off of rent for mom and dad? I don't know. Like, like I'll take an allowance. I still will, you know, but like, it's just not, it's not happened. So I think, yeah, I do think like, you know, I went to art school. Like art school is not made for people like me. It's just not. And my mom didn't want me to go. It was what it was. She wanted me to have a job that was secure with health benefits. She wanted me to have an easier life than she had. 
And I do because I did learn from the things that I saw. But when I look at some of my classmates, like I don't understand their experience because a lot of them have it a lot of easier in a way. I mean, art was designed for this kind of elite group. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, but no, you don't have to suffer. Given the life experiences you just described, you did mention having that eureka moment with photography. I remember I was a kid, maybe in fourth grade when I first heard music and I realized I want to play guitar. This is what I want to do. And the rest of my experiences, which were frankly pretty, pretty vanilla, I was like, bam, that's what I want to do. I want to make music. Do you think you would have just made more, uh, I don't know how to describe it, maybe more happy art or more different flavor of art, but you still would have had that eureka moment? It's hard to think without like the filter of the experience, what could it have been like, you know, I mean, this goes before I was born because either way I'd be born with this brown father and a white mother. And that's already complicated before it starts. If things were maybe like quote unquote normal on paper between them, maybe it would have looked differently. And maybe my work would have been just about being like uh, from a lower socioeconomic bracket. You know, I don't know. You know, it's like, that's hard for me to think through. Otherwise, maybe like what I see people do is they they do research. They do a lot of research. My research looks a little bit different. I mean, I read books and I listen to books and all that. And that goes into my work for sure. But there's a heart and soul that goes into my work. I don't always think it's received very well. My work is also super strange. So it's not for every space. It's not a pretty package. There's a lot of things I don't care about that uh, exist in the art world. So I see people and they make, they, they do all this research and then they make these products, which is a really cool process. But like, it's kind of like the difference between a, like a soulful singer, like Mary J. Blige and someone with a great voice, like Christina Aguilera, like, which one do you hear the spirit in? Yeah. It's just an interesting question to me, nature versus nurture, because I hear music or I see certain kinds of art and it's like someone strumming a chord in my soul. It just, mm -hmm. it resonates with me and I feel like, and perhaps I'm wrong, it would resonate with me no matter what, no matter how I was socialized growing up. But of course I could be, that could just be my privilege talking. I don't know. Well, it's also like technical skill versus songwriting. I mean, you could, you know, it's like you could use one chord and write a masterpiece and people could say, oh, that's one of the greatest songs of all time. But then again, you could have a very complex song, very written orchestrally, it might be an amazingly written song, but I think to Heather's point, I mean, does it have that heart and soul and does it speak to something that transcends the practice or drawing attention to the skill? You know what I mean? Does that make sense? I do, I do but for example, I absolutely love um, Indian music, like Hindu style music, Eastern music, so to speak. Though Eastern's a sort of... Uh, is actually a kind of a Western imposed term. It just, it strikes, it strikes part the pun, accord with me the same way certain kinds of art do. And I was just curious, Heather, what your reaction was, um, especially based on art that you see and that, that you really feel speaks to you in the here and now, or maybe earlier in your life. 
most things that I see, I'm bored immediately. I, like, I hate to talk like that, but I am like, I'm like, what's it for? I can look at things and I'm like, that is highly skilled, highly skilled. And why, mm-hmm. why should I care about it? I'm just going to like give you an example, but I also want to cite a couple artists is that I was at the Whitney Biennial and I was, it was a uh, 2013, 2014. What's the Whitney Biennial? The biggest American art kind of show of important American artists that happens, you know, on U.S. soil, basically. It's, it's in New York. I went and I had some professors that work was in there. And I was just like walking through there and I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Why, why, okay, why? Interesting kind of. And then... I saw these, like, it was a corner of photographs and let's say there were 10 photographs. It was very unassuming in terms of the entirety of that show with huge installations and these kind of like, you know, but these were kind of some like sort of crappy-ish, not very formal photographs of this trans couple while they were both transitioning. And I just sat down and cried. It was so vulnerable and intimate and beautiful. And just like, it just grabbed me by the heart. And I was like, this is like, this is it. And to me, like, that's what I need. Like, I need somebody to go in there and just like, like touch. Like, yeah, you're alive. Like, you're alive. Like, this is, this is what people are doing like you're showing something you're being vulnerable like all the other stuff is kind of like pomp and circumstance so I was taught by an art teacher I was very very loyal to my art teacher growing up because he sent me to Moore College of Art they had a young still do young artist workshop program and he sent me on a scholarship every year I think he knew that I wouldn't get sent if I you know, other kids' parents would send them on their own, but I wouldn't. So he always took care of me and I was loyal, but he didn't like anything past like Picasso. So he was always, it's junk, you know? So I didn't like anything, but then I was Mm. like, I was like 22, maybe, maybe I was 21. And I went out to Pittsburgh to see a band and I was hanging out at a bar and I left. I had like a little bit of time before I got back on my bus and the Warhol museum was across the street and I went in there and it changed my life. It changed my life. There was rock and roll playing. There were silver balloons floating around. There was an entire gallery full of pictures of dead people in car accidents. And I was like, Holy shit. (laughs) Like I didn't know that this could be art. And so I just like, it just, it just shook me. And that was kind of like the beginning. I, I, I studied Warhol, like, like you would never believe after that. You know, I read everything that I could read in a book and watched his films, which are, you know, fairly unwatchable. And I just really dug into it. And then I saw a show by Ray Pettibon, uh, the artist who did the covers of Black flag. That's right. Yep. Hamza Walker had curated a show at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And then I saw that. And that was like another, like, holy shit, like these are bands I grew up listening to. And here's the artist. And they're in this institution that I grew up going to. And so it just was kind of like, 
wow, like, okay, like there's some sort of space in here that I can exist. And, and so, you know, oddly enough, Hamza was actually the curator for my graduate thesis show in LA. So that was kind of like a cool full circle thing that happened. But now like the artists that I like, they're, they're doing some, you know, like really creepy shit. Like it's like, you know, it's far out. It's not for everyone. I always kind of cringe when I show my classes, like some of that stuff, but I think it's important to show people things that exist outside of the boring stuff that maybe their parents have shown them. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm embarrassed to say, I only know Pettibon stuff from the Black Flag albums. If he's got mm. a larger body of work, I was too lazy to go discover it. But at that time, and that was during the 80s, that's when, at least for someone like me who grew up in that era as a, as a punk rocker, you know, alternative music really meant alternative. It wasn't some mass corporate thing where, oh, alternative's a genre where we have all these major label and other acts, alternative means no one will play it. Right, <laughs> and, right, exactly. You know, these are DIY record companies putting out records where the, the musicians, musicians themselves put the vinyl album in the sleeve and stuff it in the album cover. But it sounds like you're, you're interested in very relational sort of art and portraying these marginalized people in a very kind of direct sort of way. So if we could talk a little bit about your art now, wherever it's shown, and for example, people can see your portfolio on your website. Could you talk a little bit about sort of the relational quality to your art? And to the extent that it's interesting to you, also your technique, because it seems very, for lack of a better term or phrase, to me, sort of hyper-realistic and direct. Like you're almost in the photograph or the video yourself. It's very, very close somehow. For one thing, I'm using the people I'm using because they're not seen enough. They're not seen by themselves enough, you know, and that's the most important thing. Like everybody else can see, sure. And that's kind of like I'm inviting everybody to the party <laughs> and you can mingle with all these people and you can meet people that maybe you, you don't know exist, but they do. It's not a myth. They're real people. And once you get to know real people, you kind of can't deny their existence or their rights. You don't want to. There's also like them seeing themselves, right? Very important. Them, them being in these spaces. There's also an element in my work and this exists really. This is, this is part of the, the portraiture is that like, I've been taking these kind of these reclining nudes that exist in art history, who are often portraying these like women who are, you know, prostitutes or seen as these figures that are rejected by society. They're looking straight at the viewer in this kind of seductive way, or they're being seen as this object by the painters. And so I'm taking them and I'm, I'm, I'm putting my subjects in there and I'm subverting that, right? That my subjects own what they're, you know, if you look at them, they're looking at you, you know, mm -hmm. like who's looking harder. I'm putting bodies on a image that are not seen as beautiful, that are seen as that are, that are object, that are grotesque. You think about the trans body in film, the trans body in film. It's like, it's, it's causing repulsion by everybody that comes across it. This is how these bodies have been re represented through time. You know, black bodies are, are criminal. Brown bodies are criminal or terrorist. Like there's, you know, so I'm, I'm taking all those people and I'm, I'm creating like a more liberated space. And 
using a technique like a handheld camera that shakes where you see, you know, that somebody is there. So you're there, you know, you're, you're set in there. There's intimacy. Like if I don't have intimacy on my sets, like, and that's something I've always had with the camera is I've had an intimate connection with the subject, no matter who I'm photographing. I always want that person to look their best. I am not interested in making somebody not like what they see once it comes out of my camera. I don't show bad at like I get rid of all the junk right off the bat, you know, because I want people to feel good when they see an image that I've made of them. And so I think that's what puts you in there too, is that intimacy that I have. I have a personal relationship with everybody that I use or I'm in the midst of building one because they're allowing me to use them. How do you feel when you've completed a piece? I thrive in that space. Walking in the grad school, I have no interest working in video. You know, walking down out of graduation, got a time-based media certification. And I've focused more on moving pictures than still images and still do. So I love the space of collecting all that information and then putting it together and then putting it out. I love, I love when I show a film and then I have a group of people who were in it, like standing there eagerly looking. I love the amusement and the joy and the confusion that comes from a viewer watching my films. Like, I don't know what I'm seeing, but like, I like it. You know, like, I think there's something in there that, you know, that maybe I can't understand or, you know, I just can't be objective about that does bring joy. It does like, it's a celebration. It's, it, you see the community. I feel really good. Like I love that moment. But it sounds like there is a certain amount of fulfillment you get out of producing in the process itself and in doing these different styles of work, but also just through the the completion of it. Is that accurate? You know, I think making is like such a puzzle that you're putting together, you know, like you're, you're doing something and you're, you're, you're trying to make all these things kind of work, especially producing for a show, but also like, for me, it feels like I'm, I'm doing something for people. You know, I'm doing something for the people that I use as well. And that feels very satisfying to me. It feels less self-indulgent. And I get excited about it because I think it's fun. Like, I, you know, I love my work. I wouldn't make it if I didn't. And I, it's, it makes me laugh. You know, like some of it's a dirty joke and some of it like, and it's like, you know, I think the thing, I do is I try to be really, really democratic when I make this stuff. You know, I want everybody to be able to take away something from it. Like maybe you're an artist and you know how to watch these things and look for the kind of deeper content. Or maybe you're like, you know, somebody's mom and you're looking at it and you're just laughing because there's something funny in there. and you know, that, that is my aim. So that, that brings me a lot of joy. And I'll, I laugh at all those jokes, you know, I mean, a hot dog joke at the end of a film where, you know, guys serving hot dogs and all these women are eating it and cutting it up. And, you know, it's like, it's kind of silly, but it's a abjection, you know, it came from reading a book, but it's also like, 
It's also something I watched when I watched Tom Hanks and bachelor party, you know, like there it's coming from multiple places and it's highbrow, lowbrow, you know, I think there's a word for that where those two places meet. It's like, and, and I think everybody can kind of take away a little piece of something from that. Well, no. And that's, and I, I assume you're, you're kind of referring to uh, what's it called? Sextra curricular activities when you say mm-hmm. hot dogs at the end, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and just kind of speaking to your, your work in general, the photographs, the portraits, uh, with like the, the baby clothes and like the pink dresses, that video that you did with your friend with all the food as well. I think that you're definitely playing with that in that there is a sort of like a nostalgia for the past. It kind of is like, uh, deconstructed in a way that is maybe not as like beautiful traditionally, mm-hmm. but there certainly is, you can see that you're playing with those kind of, whether it came from this point in my life where I saw a bachelor party, or maybe it is this book that I read. I mean, you are playing with that in sort of a camp sort of way. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, a relish in camp. It's, it's an easy space for me to kind of like play around with. I mean, I will mention that I grew up as a dancer and a gymnast and I had a really mean gymnastics teacher. And so I kind of had this like liberated, like, okay, like rogue gymnastics dance class. And I made all my friends dance and did choreography and, and costumes and all this stuff. So that is heavily part of my work today too. That, that informs my work just as much as the the art experience that I had growing up. I didn't have the performance experience and I was a performer. I was in parades all the time and, you know, mall expos and 4-H and all this weird shit. I was a square dancer and a unicyclist. So that all is like, that's the bundle. There's like hmm, the time play. Yes, it comes from all over the place, but also it's like thinking about like, a future where all of these things exist and we don't have to think about them, right? We don't have to think about representation. We don't have to think, we don't have to worry. Does this little kid who's got this identity issue that has nobody to talk to, is he going to see, you know, himself represented in the media, you know, in a positive light, you know, like, so that's like the futurism, you know, and then there's like the here and now, and that's like kind of the content, happening and then there's like the past right i have analog that always exists in my work and playing around with those kind of like time frames in order to yeah make somebody think like well where exactly am i and 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 it's the same thing for me like where am i like when i look at that stuff i often have to think like where'd that come from? Oh yeah. Like those hot dogs, that was Nick the Dick from bachelor party, you know, I'm just hilarious say, I did scene. not expect that reference in this episode. <laughs> yeah. Me neither. I mean, wow. <laughs> That's, you, want, you want an example of high art, you know, yeah, go, yeah, go exactly. find bachelor party. I have no VHS Sadly, downstairs. I, I saw it in the me. theater when it came out. So no. Wow. Just, amazing. Just amazing. Bad and suburban is all. No, that. no. It doesn't hold up that well, though. I watched it recently. It's <laughs> does not. Yeah, there's a yeah, there's a pretty there's a, also I'll I'll just note so that we acknowledge that there's some pretty racist stuff in there too. But there's takeaways, you know. There's takeaways, and 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 regardless of where it falls on the scale of high cinema. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Cecil B. It's, DeMille of uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It definitely it definitely left an impression. It, I mean, it was it was a Tom Hanks '80s film, right? Maybe maybe it was his first film. I don't know. Awesome. Well, Heather, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, on thank Club you. Obscurite. <laughs> they say <it> right. <laughs> perfect again. <laughs> Bat in a thousand. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that right? I feel like I do the accent wrong. It's, I feel it's like, exquisite. I feel like I'm in Paris every time you say it. <laughs> Paris, Texas. I, I heard something. Yes. <laughs> I heard something. Obscure. Te- oh, I heard Cartman. That's what I heard. Cartman? Like from South Park? Yes. That's right. That's fantastic. Thank you, Heather. This has been uh, a, a, a real pleasure. And like I said, you give me a lot to think about and very much appreciate your work. And certainly we'll look at it in a whole new way. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You know, best to you both. I'm glad you're doing this. I'm, I'm excited to like dig into the podcast and see what's up on your end. Feels